It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Tensions are mounting across the United States and around the world. People from all walks of life often feel like their opinions aren't respected or heard. Bitter disagreements drive wedges between neighbors and communities. You might not think of an argument as a way to improve things, but the Aspen Institute's Eric Liu says the Better Arguments Project was created to help bridge divides. Even though we live in a time where our politics are so completely polarized and so divided and so vitriolic, we don't necessarily need fewer arguments in America right now. Our premise is we just need less stupid ones. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion was held by Aspen Ideas Now, a digital content initiative at the Institute. The Better Arguments Project's approach is not to paper over problems, but to help Americans recognize how history, emotions, and power play a role in creating differences and give people the tools they need to listen to each other. Lou spoke with Stacy Sharp of Allstate and Roger Brooks of Facing History and Ourselves about how arguments can be helpful and civil, from Alaska to New York and everywhere in between. Here's Lou. The Better Arguments Project is a collaboration of the Allstate Corporation, the Aspen Institute, and Facing History and Ourselves. And it's a grassroots educational uh, civic engagement project that, as the name suggests, um, is all about trying to foster a culture uh, in which uh, we can learn, in fact, to come together by arguing. And that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I think it's really important because um, what animates this whole project uh, is the idea that even though we live in a time where our politics are so completely polarized and so divided and so vitriolic, we don't necessarily need fewer arguments in America right now. Our premise is we just need less stupid ones. And, uh, and not to be glib, what that means is we need arguments that are actually recognizing that America itself is an argument. Uh, from the get-go, uh, civic life in this country has been about some core, unresolvable, perpetual tensions uh, that are baked into everything from our constitution to our culture. Uh, a tension between freedom and equality, a tension between strong national government and getting to decide stuff locally attention between being color conscious and being color blind. Um, all these tensions that run throughout our history and that are playing out again on our streets, um, on the steps of the Supreme Court, uh, all over the country right now. Um, and, uh, and so it's okay to argue, uh, but there are ways to argue that are more constructive and there are ways to argue that are more destructive. And um, that was the argument, so to speak, that I made in a piece um, that I wrote shortly before the 2016 election. And, um, and it was out of that piece that I think the three of us came together and said, you know what, there's an idea here that we should actually try to bring to life uh, and bring to people. And uh, Stacy, I don't know if you want to describe just kind of what your vision was when you wanted to kind of pop that two-dimensional uh, essay in the Atlantic into a three-dimensional living, you know, uh, project, because uh, I think you had that vision strong from the get-go. Well, it was, it, it was that article, Eric, that, that sparked the need to do more. And uh, once I read it, I sent it over to my friends at Facing History and Ourselves. And of course, uh, their, their response was, we've seen it, we're all over it, let's talk. <laughs> that, that really became uh, the beginning of the three of us, you know, thinking about in our organizations, thinking about how we could actually affect change in our society. And from, you know, our point of view, from a business perspective, um, look, you, we can't have gridlock inside our businesses. Like we absolutely have to confront 
different points of view in order to move things forward. So we thought we have some expertise to share. And we also realized that with the tough problems that we have in our society, we can't all just stay in our neutral corners. Uh, we have got to not paper over the divides, as Eric, you would say, but actually confront these issues head on. And the question would be, how do we do that? How do we actually do that in a productive way? Um, and I really think that's the beauty of the partnership with Facing History and Ourselves, because they are, are so, um, they have so, so much expertise in how to handle these types of conversations. You know, at, at Facing History and Ourselves, our mission is to use lessons of history to challenge teachers and their students to stand up against bigotry and hate. And our interest in the Better Arguments Project is, is right out of that mission. Bigotry and hate are so often sustained by sides that cannot talk with one another, that don't know how to argue and disagree with one another in ways that do anything but divide them further. So we're partners because so much of our work in classrooms has been about helping teachers and students figure out how to have dialogues across difference and around really difficult matters. Um, I think if you, uh, when we talk for, about the basic principles of a better argument, um, we'll see how all of those um, contribute to this building of community instead of tearing apart of community. You know, Roger, you're, you're talking about the ways in which you all at Facing History um, use history to engage. And, and what you're really opening up to is, you know, in this work that we and, and really our teams, um, we have on our website, betterarguments.org, um, codified a few dimensions here of a better argument, uh, uh, three dimensions of a better argument. And, and then we've also talked about five principles of a better argument, which we'll get to in a moment. But I want to I uh, unpack a little bit with, uh, with you two, these three dimensions of a better argument, because the first one, Roger, is one that you just named, um, and that's history, right? A better argument, one that is less stupid, uh, and, and to say that in a non-glib way, um, in the first place, reckons with history. In the second place, faces emotion and the ways that people respond emotionally uh, uh, to things and has emotional intelligence. And then in third place, um, is honest about power and real about the fact that people come into civic arguments and public debates um, often on unequal footing as, uh, in, in terms of power. Uh, and you gotta be able to name that if you're gonna get uh, through that. And so, um, I don't know, on, on the history piece, Roger, what, what um, um, what does it mean, actually, um, in a better argument to reckon with history? Yeah, so I think one of the uh, things that we often forget is that the problems that we're facing that feel hot right now, the divides between, you know, political sides or even neighbors who are, who are uh, caught up in a, in a dispute, we, we forget sometimes that those are usually not of the moment, they're usually long-standing historical um, legacies that have come to people. So, you know, if you think about uh, some of the animating arguments of America, they didn't start now. These these differences between our two political parties right now, these are playing out very, very long, long um, histories. And the more you can know about the decisions that were made long ago that shaped the history we're living now, the better off, the better able you'll be to look at today's moment and say, 
I have options in front of me and they, they don't necessarily mean doing the same thing that's always been done. Um, I think figuring out the historical legacies that are standing behind discussions or disputes about even, you know, the rural and urban divide, these are not brand new things, brand new problems. Knowing more about that historical context makes you a smarter member of a, of a argument. Well, it's interesting when you say smarter because the, the second dimension of a better argument that we talk about, Stacy, is this idea of emotional and spe specifically emotional intelligence, right? Um, that uh, being able to, well, you know, from the business world, right? I mean, uh, progress and success in business, whether within an organization or in building markets and, and partnerships, um, isn't just about raw IQ. In fact, it's often secondarily about raw IQ. It's more about kind of, do you sense how people are moving? Do you sense the dynamics and the patterns that are unfolding between how people deal with each other, whether it's healthy or unhealthy? And I don't know, Stacy. like when you think about the emotion dimension of a better argument, um, what strikes you as something that's really important to, for folks to know? Well, well, one, Eric, I think it's important as a part of context to understand that arguments are wrought with emotion right? And that people are coming from opposing views. And so having an understanding that I may have a strong emotional charge about this particular topic, but the person that has the opposing point of view does as well. And if we both come supercharged to that conversation, only reflecting on our own emotions, we're getting nowhere. Mm -hmm. And that's why you've got to step back. You know, I, I think about it even in our business, we are in the business of protecting people from life's uncertainties, which means when people come to us at Allstate, something bad has happened. And often those are emotionally charged um, conversations and calls, and it's on us to diffuse the, the, the emotion and help come to solutions. So um, the, the idea of bringing that out in society and bringing those skills out into the world where that you can listen um, and with empathy and with passion so that you can hear and appreciate what the other person's point of view is before you are trying to convince anyone else of what your emotionally charged point of view may be. Mm. You know, on both of these, both history and emotion, it's worth thinking about, um, I mean, if you actually, anybody who's listening, just like think about a bad argument in your life, right? Could be one you had this morning with some, someone you share home with, or it could be, you know, a long running one with, uh, with someone you work with, whatever it might be. And bad arguments usually are um, blind to history, um, they, they ignore either willfully or just unintentionally um, what's come before. Um, and they're often willfully kind of emotionally cut off, right? Uh, and people are not tuning in to their own patterns and, and being able to reset in the way, Stacey, you're talking about. And I think the same is true of the third dimension of a better argument, that is power. Um, bad arguments are ones where no one's being real uh, about the fact that um, we're not entering in on the same footing uh, uh, on, on this, in this particular engagement, but a better argument is one where we can be grown-ups and name that, right? And name the fact that, uh, um, you know, I think about one of the engagements, which we'll talk a little bit more about, like in Detroit, uh, um, we did a really deep engagement in Detroit with uh, communities there where the better arguments that they wanted to have 
were not about national politics, were not about high philosophy. They were about the simmering tensions between long timers and newcomers, right? And those are tensions that are about place, about race, about class, uh, and about power. And you would not, they were not gonna be able to get anywhere unless they were able to name power, right? And, uh, and I think all three of those dimensions are, are super important, uh, Stacey. Yeah, Eric, you, you uh, mentioned the simmering tensions, which reminds me of another uh, facing history moment when um, Dr. Terrence Roberts, who is uh, one of the Little Rock Nine, um, who obviously were the first two um, black students to go to Little um, Rock Central High School. And he says that we as a country are addicted to comfort. And the whole idea of, you, you mentioned simmering tensions. He talks about anger and pain and of boiling under the surface. And at times it will explode. Um, and I think we're seeing that, you know, in our country today. And, you know, he was encouraging us that we have to get uncomfortable. Hmm. We have to um, not just allow those tensions to simmer underneath. And just like you described happened in Detroit, you, you've got to bring out those ideas and tensions, um, the pain and the emotion to the surface so they can be dealt with. Yeah, the, uh, the hardest thing in the world is to tell someone, I wanna talk with you, I wanna have a argument with you, and it's gonna hurt. <laughs> and hopefully when we're done, both of us are gonna understand the other better we're going to maybe not resolve this, but we're going to understand what we think and what the other thinks better, but it's going to be hard and painful. And that's a really, that's, that's complicated to get people to say, I'm willing to invest that piece of me, you know, my emotional self, but you need to do that often to make progress. Roger, you said something really important there. I don't want to drive past, which is, um, maybe we won't resolve this. Yeah. Right? And I think part of a really important, uh, you know, starting principle in uh, or, or premise of the whole Better Arguments project um, isn't that necessarily the outcome is that everybody comes to consensus and uh, everybody locks arms and we're on the same page. Probably not, because there's a, there's a reason why these, you know, co core tensions exist on, uh, on on all these different dimensions. But um, but what it means to be grown up about civic life and participating in a community is to recognize that the literally the least we can do, and right now it seems like a lot, is to humanize uh, that other person who might have a worldview that's different from our own. And Roger, this kind of takes us to the, the, what we've talked about as the five principles yeah. um, of a better argument. And uh, I don't know if you wanted to kind of get us rolling just to, you know, for our listeners, just talk about uh, a couple of these and, and, then, uh, and then we can kind of each take a turn. Yeah, you know, let me name the five of them, and then we can go back to each one. The first is taking winning off the table. So it's not about my convincing you that I'm right and you're wrong. We're going to start in a different place from that. Uh, the second principle is prioritizing relationships so you can listen really passionately and actively. The third is paying attention to context. We talk about history as a context, emotion as a context. Power as context. We talked about that. We'll talk a little bit more. Um, fourth is embracing vulnerability. If I can't be vulnerable while we're talking, if I can't live, own up to the fact that we're going to have some 
some complicated moments, um, I'm not going to get anything out of this, and you're not going to get uh, anything either. And then the last uh, of the five principles is to make room to transform, to allow yourself the possibility you might be changed in this argument. And I think uh, if you take those five, you know, I, I, I want to start with taking winning off the table for a minute and just, just riff on that for a half a second. Hmm. Throughout American history, we've had these deep, deep divides. Um, uh, Eric, I think one of the most famous that you've put in your original article was pluribus versus unum. Perfect example, right? Are we, are we disparate and diverse and, and many, or are we one and everyone's you know, together? That's not something that we're going to win. Like there's not, it, it isn't the case that pluribus wins and everything's good or unum wins. It's that that tension is something that we can explore together. Well, if you think that that's been one of the animating um, arguments throughout American history, it's also the case that virtually every hot button issue today, if you take winning off the table for a minute, you get so much farther in the way you want to talk with a person who you disagree with. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, it's not about winning. It's not about reaching resolution. It's about thinking we're working together on something. Uh, that's pretty profound to me. It is. That, that idea of thinking together, there's another word for that, which is understanding, right? And I think when you, when you replace winning with understanding as your goal, right? Let's get into this argument and, you know, uh, I'm not going to try to crush you and, and make you kind of wail in shame as you as I defeat you. Um, but actually, I just want to understand your worldview. And I want you to understand mine, like actually, like recognize me, right? And I think that is, um, th that is huge. And, um, you know, I I'll take the second one of, you know, prioritizing relationships and listening passionately, because um, those are very connected, right? Uh, um, I think, <laughs> I heard a story yesterday, I, just, I must share. Um, with a, a dear friend and collaborator whose husband recently ran an unsuccessful uh, political campaign. Uh, but she was describing how in the final days of the campaign, um, she'd gone out into one of the towns in the district um, and, and was campaigning for, for her husband, the candidate. Um, and she um, got into an argument with somebody um, in the parking lot there about, this, about her husband and about this race. Um, and turns out this person she was arguing with was a conspiracy theorist and had all kinds of you know, factually wrong things to say about, uh, about her husband. Um, and uh, they were going at it where, to the point where my friend actually said, I was about ready to actually hit her. I was so like fired up and angry. Um, and then as they were arguing in this parking lot, um, an elderly woman came by and tripped or, or, and fell. And mid-sentence, mid-argument, both this friend of mine and this person she was arguing with stopped and went to help this elderly woman, right? And, um, and then it just kind of broke the circuit, right? They didn't keep arguing and they didn't become friends, but it kind of broke the circuit for both of them to realize, wait a minute, we were acting like social media avatars. We were flaming each other. We did not know each other. We did not try to know each other, right? And, um, and prioritizing relationships and listening passionately is, is the opposite of what so much of our media culture trains us to do right now. You know, one of the things I just love and unfortunately, people listening to this podcast can't see it. But I can see both of your faces. And when you told that story, 
about people broke off their argument and walked over and helped, Stacy's face lit up, your face lit up while you were talking, mine did, I couldn't help it. I think that that shows right there the power of, uh, that, of, of these ideas. So beautiful. And um, it's, it's interesting about uh, prioritizing relationships. Um, when bef before the pandemic, we had a retreat for Facing History and Ourselves, Roger, when we could all get together. And they had us write a note to ourselves that they would then mail to us at some unexpected time um, about what we learned and what was um, our reflection of that retreat. And just the other day, uh, my husband, who you both know, uh, Lamont, who actually used to work at Aspen, opened his, it came in June, but he had, you, you really have to read this when you're talking about better arguments. And his note to himself from that retreat, I learned and appreciated the focus, the importance of focus on leaving a path for those with whom we disagree to join us in pursuit of a more perfect and hopefully anti-racist union. This was pre-pandemic, I believe mailed Roger in June, and there are people in Lamont's a former trial attorney that has very strong opinions. So for him to acknowledge that I got to leave room, I got to leave that path open for other points of view if we're going to create a more perfect union. So I, I think, Eric, your, your story about people realizing what's important and coming together and taking a step back and prioritizing that humanity is so important and if we can collectively build more of that in our society we've we've done well well it ties Stacey, right to the, the the third principle which is paying attention to context right and um uh, i don't know if you want to say anything about that i mean when you think about whether it's the context of, of culture history you know class race whatever it might be that we're not just kind of neutral bots kind of doing purely rational arguments with each other right no, and you know we often talk, you know, with our teams and um, with the work that we're doing together that identities are complex. So fully understanding the the context of which the the argument is occurring is so important. So you understand where people are coming from. We actually used um, the principles of better argument and kind of the flow of. Uh, the process you know, inside with our officers on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in one of those small groups, an executive was very honest that this context within my company as I'm having these conversations is very different than when I go home in the context of the political views of my family. And she was appreciative to have a different lens of engaging in that dialogue um, with her loved ones instead of trying to avoid any type of argument at all, which we all know gets us nowhere, especially if you can't even have the argument inside your family. If the answer is, you know, we're going to argue, so let's just not talk about it. Um, if we can't, we can't argue with our family to move forward, how are we going to affect our, our civic society? Um, so really understanding the complexity of identity, understanding uh, where people are coming from and the, the historical context, but also the personal context from their point of view is really important. You know, the, the letter that you shared that Lamont, that your husband had, had written to himself, um, actually embodies also the, the fourth principle we're talking about here, which is to embrace vulnerability, right? Like you said, 
here is a guy who was trained as an armor-plated trial lawyer, like ready to go to war at any minute and, you know, and definitely show no weakness, right? Uh, or show nothing that could be interpreted as weakness. And, um, and like you said, you know, what that gets you is a culture of kind of scorched earth litigiousness, right? Whether literally in the courtrooms or just in our kitchen tables or, you know, conference rooms or whatever. And, um, but so much easier said than done, don't you think? I mean, to embrace vulnerability. We, we, we three like to think of ourselves as pretty enlightened and sure, and I'm sure I can, you know, confess first, like there are plenty of times where I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to, like, you know, I feel something and I don't want to show it, right? I mean, in this project, how have we tried to encourage people to, to embrace that? Well, I'll just start with the fact that these principles all go together. So if you start where Roger started with taking winning off the table, you're already a bit disarmed and you can already embrace, I think, your vulnerability because it's not about convincing the other person um, that you are right or to change their point of view. Um, it is about learning and engaging and trying to understand different perspectives. I think that helps. Stacy, I think looking at the through line between the, the first four of these principles and the one we're going to talk about in a minute, making room to transform, is so smart. And the, the through line that you just pointed to is really about decentering yourself. Like, I'm coming to this argument, I'm not the most important person in the room. Neither are you. What's more important is we're trying to get to a kind of relationship, a community between us. If you've got two people who are in an argument or two sides or two groups, and they're really passionate about that argument, they care about the same issue. So they're already bound together in really interesting ways. Um, emotionally, you know, in terms of uh, their vulnerability. But I think somehow the, a lot of this is about figuring out how do I enter into this conversation without thinking it's about me. That certainly is what vulnerability is about. But it's also about what transformation is about, that last idea that you make room to transform. If I don't start by thinking, I already get it, I'm here, I've got but instead I think I'm not the center of this. There could be, it could be something that I'm the one who learns. Well, that allows, um, that's kind of the, the wrapper around this whole argument that, that says I'm coming into it willing to change. Um, Audrey, I just got to underscore that last thought. I mean, we often talk about this fifth principle of making room to transform. Um, or at least I often say, you can't possibly change someone else's mind if you're not willing to have your own mind changed. But what you're saying is actually something deeper than that, because even my articulation there is still a little bit instrumental. Like, you know, I'm going to, okay, I'll be willing to have my mind changed so that I can still achieve my goal of changing your mind, you stupid right. jerk, right? Uh, uh, and, and what you're saying is, you know, when you release that kind of ego dimension of this, um, I may simply be transformed by this yeah. interaction. Right. You may you may or may not be, but I got to be willing to enter into this in a way where um, I, I might change. And um, I, I really agree, Stacey, you're, that through line and the, and the kind of also circular connected nature of these principles is really important. And, and maybe it's worth now pivoting to just talking about how this has already been playing out um, in communities around the country. Um, we've spent a couple of years piloting 
and testing in different ways. And uh, just recently, this uh, summer of 2020, uh, we began a, a scaling phase. And during all of this work, we've been to places that run the gamut from Anchorage, Alaska, where people were arguing about the dynamics of climate change, uh, Dumas, Arkansas, where people were talking about you know, economic development uh, in, in that community, um, you know, Queens, New York, talking about controversial monuments there. Um, I mentioned Detroit, where um, we did a big gathering of folks that was really about those tensions between long-timers and newcomers, and in Denver, um, a, a big convening about uh, the, the consequences, the pros and cons of the tech boom uh, that that region has been facing and who's been included and who's been left behind. And um, I don't know, Stacy and Roger, when you think about all these different engagements that we and our teams have been part of, tell our listeners about something that kind of stuck out for you, you know, an encounter or a moment uh, that you were part of or heard of uh, um, in any of these communities around the country. And, and let's start making it concrete for folks uh, in where they live, because I feel like, um, you know, even hearing Stacy, you talk about how this has played out in your workplace. I bet there are tons of people listening right now already thinking about, okay, I got to do this in my office. I got to bring these things to work. Um, and um, I think we want to give some people some examples of how they can bring it to their neighborhood, to their community, um, and to the places where they're trying to be citizens. Denver really sticks out to me in multiple ways. One, you know, was about the tech boom and who was benefiting from all of the growth in tech and, and who was not. And the governor joined us and community leaders were very active in the, in the dialogue. And it was interesting to me that people thought they were getting all types of voices and opinions and perspectives on how the city should be dealing with this growth. You're, we're having community hearings, we're having community meetings, we're having town halls. And there were many people in the audience that were like, well, I don't know who's at those meetings, but I'm not getting the notices. And if you're having it during the day, guess what? I'm at work. So the very people that you're trying to help um, are not part of that conversation. And so that was, you know, an, an eye-opening um, lesson for me is just making sure the right voices um, and perspectives are engaged in these dialogues, especially when you are making you know, incredible changes in our, our nation's cities. The other um, big takeaway for me there is we had a local Allstate agent who was so thankful that we were hosting the conversation and really inspired about the opportunity because even though we are a national company with national prominence, we are embedded in every single community in America and so we see the challenges when there are deep divisions um, and that communities aren't coming together to solve local issues like they used to. And so it was wonderful to see one of our small business owners really excited about the groups that we got together and the dialogue and engagement that would continue even after that event. It was very inspiring. That, that is a really key point what happens after the event, what happens after that convening, right? And I think the, the making room for transform, Roger, that you were talking about is not just in the, in the heat of the moment, right? It is that transformation can unfold over time and so can the relationships and so can all of these things um, uh, if you create a frame for people to keep on staying uh, connected in a sense of, of human relationship. At one of the tables I was at during one of our gatherings, at the end of our table talk, I challenged my uh, partners 
to model some of what they had learned. And I said, you know, start by introducing even one of these principles into your daily interactions. Try to imagine what it's like if you just go through a day, pick one day and say, I'm going to go through today without worrying about winning, right? Or, or maybe you can do two or even more of these. But if you become known in your community as somebody who can disagree without rancor, right? With you, I, I can have the conversation with you. I can disagree with you. I'm not going to get angry because I'm not necessarily invested in winning. I want to know what you believe and I want to think about why is it different from what I believe. As you model that, even in daily interactions, it shows up. Um, and then, of course, when you get into a position where you're part of a group that's having a conversation or an argument, you're, you're prepared to take these ideas sort of to the street. And I think that's really important. The other thing that I noticed all along the way is that people come to Better Arguments gatherings and they want their voice to be heard. Voices are connected to agency. Agency is connected to power. People want their voices to be heard. And if, if you can say, I'm actually listening to you rather than, uh, I know you're talking and I'm thinking about what I'm going to say when you're done. But if you can actually listen to people, that raises them up from the person across the table to your teacher. If I'm listening to you carefully, you're actually my teacher. What a powerful thing that is to say to somebody that I don't agree with. I, I literally am writing this down as you're talking here, Roger, because I, I think that idea, um, by listening to someone, you make them your teacher, is, is profound. And it reminds me, I mean, one of the most striking things that I experienced in one of these Better Arguments uh, engagements that we did around the country was in Detroit. And, you know, those tensions between long-timers and newcomers which, um, as I said earlier, are, are often literally and figuratively painted in black and white. One thing really struck me, I was reminded of a, of a um, conversation I'd had with a guy named Tim Dixon, who, who runs something called More in Common. Um, and, and, and More in Common has done all these polls of Americans about how frustrated they are or, or not with our political culture right now. Um, and one of the key findings Tim told me about was that across the board, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, urban, rural, young, old, Everybody in America right now feels disrespected. And I thought, that is weird, interesting, and problematic, right? <laughs> that, that for all these reasons of tectonic demographic shifts, incredible economic inequality, of course now pandemic, all these different reasons, everybody feels unheard, disrespected. Now, it can't be true that everyone is uh, equally uh, unheard, but, uh, but the fact that that is the emotional contours uh, of the land, that, that really came to life in Detroit, right? Uh, of course, you had long timers who felt unheard and disrespected by, you know, hip young millennials uh, um, who, who were white, who were coming in and, and not knowing the history or not respecting the, um, you know, the elders or the relationships in a given part of town. But then you also had, uh, though, you know, they had to enter into it more gingerly, um, some of these newcomers saying they felt disrespected because they wanted to come with an open heart. They wanted to engage and they were being painted with a broad brush as, oh, some of these folks who were just coming in to, you know, quote, save Detroit. And again, I think what was illuminating about that Better Arguments engagement was um, we created a space where people could name that. And from there, they could talk about the things that were still hard to talk about, about what they could do together, 
about tensions that were going to always be there and about maybe some ways that they could still try to build community together. But it was that sense in the first place that you said people want their voices to be heard. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to be recognized. They want to be respected, right? And that really was a takeaway for me from the Detroit uh, gathering. You know, in Detroit, Eric, one of the facilitators was a, a former staff member from Facing History uh, who had been born in Detroit, lived there most of her life, moved away, and then was going back to Detroit to help facilitate this conversation. And one of the things I thought was so interesting about that is she was both a longtime Detroit resident, mm. but she had moved away, so she was no longer, and she was coming back without being deeply embedded in the Detroit community. And in some ways, she was a perfect person to help bridge that divide. So I think sometimes the choice of a really good facilitator that fits the kind of conversation argument you're having, I think that can make a huge difference in making certain that you can turn and say to this one, well, wait a minute, I, I grew up here and I have some of those same feelings you do. Listen to what he just said. That's that's the kind of thing that I think is really at the heart of um, listening passionately, but also making certain the other person across the table from you, across the divide from you, across the aisle from you, is uh, you know is given full respect and agency. That that's so important. Stacy, I think if anybody listening now, um, hopefully they're on side with us about this and now they're probably itching to be like okay well how like what what can i do right and how could i get better at facilitating these how could i and we've spent a lot of time energy resource creating a uh, a website betterarguments.org that we're beginning to populate and over time is going to have even more resources and stacy if you want to talk a bit about the the how side of this and what it is that we're trying to equip people with the uh, so that um, they can take some of what we've been talking about and put it into practice. Yeah, and I just to build off of Roger's point about people wanting to be heard right now, the environment that we're in where so many people feel isolated or our circles of obligation are getting smaller and smaller um, because it's basically our neighborhood or our home or our computer screen, that the, the work of Better Arguments and creating the online resources that we have are great ways for people to look at the different environments that they're in and leverage those tools to practice better arguments. Whether you're using it for work, there's resources for the workplace, there's resources for educators to leverage with students, um, there's resources for your home life, as Eric mentioned, if you have an argument in your home that you want help um, and, and facilitating uh, and it gives you, to Roger's point, it gives you ideas on how to think about facilitation. How do you bring the groups together? And I would encourage everyone listening to not only think about the arguments that come immediate to mind and the people you want to engage with, but especially now to expand the network of people that you are, are talking to and engaging with. And it does take more intention now that we are uh, more isolated than we were before the pandemic. And in order to bridge these divides, we've got to fight against that um, isolation and really expand who we are engaging with and definitely people that have different points of view than we have. Well, I really want to pick up on that because I think um, 
uh, on the website now are um, those resources you've described, Stacey, in the brainstorming guide and the best practices on facilitation. But uh, coming soon, uh, we're going to be adding things that are just about how, particularly in this pandemic online Zoom environment, um, how you can invite people in um, and have your own gathering. Uh, it can be a virtual gathering, but have your own gathering with a pre-designed guide uh, to talk about, you know, to have a better argument. Um, we are going to be providing resources for folks to actually license uh, uh, some of our frameworks uh, and, and apply and apply them to their own domains and, and build more material off of them. And also we're going to be uh, doing customized trainings over time uh, for organizations. Even though, you know, I, I wanted to kind of make sure our listeners know about the resources that are on the website and those that are coming soon in the next few months, it all comes back to something that both of you were talking about earlier, which is just a commitment that each of us makes at the level of the heart, right? About how we're going to show up and how we're going to be and how we're going to move. And it's just, you, you put it well, Stacey, it's a matter of intention. And whether that intention is, like Roger, you were saying, today I'm going to try to take winning off the table. I'm like, that's my goal for today in my interactions, right? Um, or whether it's the intention around a longstanding particular argument to, okay, I'm going to try to come at this a slightly different angle. Um, and, and prioritize relationships instead of something else. I think each choice there is ultimately an ind individual choice. And, you know, we've got a couple minutes left. I don't know if either of you wants to just share some parting thoughts about this project and what it is that you hope um, we can make possible in, in our civic culture in the country right now. I think coming into the room with your heart, leading, leading with your heart um, is so important and it opens up a lot of things. One thing I've found that it opens is there's a kind of serendipitous moment where you realize the person that you didn't know very well is actually someone you really like. Like there's nothing as good as finding out that, boy, I think this and you think the opposite of this, but you know what? It turns out that we both care about it so much that we're actually friends because we care about this issue so much. Um, that serendipity of friendship that comes out of, uh, you know, the emotional intelligence, the listening passionately, the prioritizing relationships, all that, to me, that is one of the jewels of this, uh, outcomes of this, of this project. I love that, Roger. And when I step back and think about um, all states' involvement in this work, um, you know, we look at, all of the different challenges that we are facing as business as and well as our country and you know we come to the conclusion that we can't solve um, some of our country's biggest challenges if we're only listening to the ideas that support our own point of view um, innovation change happens when you bring different perspectives and transform your thinking and are open-minded relationships are built that can solve problems um, and look this is this is tough uh, we called it better arguments for a reason not nice conversations or um, <laughs> you know this it, it facing opposition takes courage and you know all state supports better arguments uh, as our expression of courageous leadership and another way that we feel like we can make meaningful change and strengthening communities. And we are encouraging everyone to have that same courage uh, to engage across differences so that we can all be better 
and that our democracy can be stronger. I'm not sure we can put it better than that. And I guess I'll, I'll just close by saying, you know, from our vantage point here at the Aspen Institute, um, you know, this project is about trying to change our culture. And, you know, we're having this conversation and this project is growing at a time of incredible uh, division and toxicity in our politics. And, you know, as we sit here and speak, it's, uh, you know, 40 days out from a presidential election that might actually take things completely off the charts uh, in terms of uh, uh, division and disunion. And, um, and so, you know, if you're listening and you've been engaging here, you might think, oh, this is nice, but, um, you know, it's not enough. It's not enough to actually stop the, 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 all these forces that are tearing us apart. And our belief at the Aspen Institute, all the partners in this, uh, all state-facing history, all the local partners we've engaged with, we believe we can be enough. We actually do believe that we can change the culture over time. Maybe not in time for this presidential election, uh, but that culture change takes time because what we're talking about here are habits and practices and norms and commitments that are not a one and done. They are not a every four years. They are not a box to check, right? Um, they are a commitment to make to each other. And I think uh, the spirit that we've come into, uh, Allstate and Aspen and Facing History in being partners in good trouble uh, in, in making this project um, is the spirit that we wanna invite all of you listening here uh, to join us in. And, and that is long-term commitment to changing our culture one relationship, one argument, one conversation, one institution at a time. Uh, and over time, that's the only way uh, together we're going to make our democracy work for everybody. The Better Arguments Project is a collaboration between the Aspen Institute, Allstate, and Facing History and Ourselves. Roger Brooks is president and CEO of Facing History and Ourselves, an organization seeking a world guided by knowledge and compassion, not bigotry or prejudice. Stacy Sharp is Senior Vice President at Allstate. She oversees corporate reputation, communications, thought leadership, and public relations. They spoke with Eric Liu, Executive Director of the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. Their conversation was held in September as part of Aspen Ideas Now. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and Shauna Lewis. It was programmed by Aspen Ideas Now. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm.